welcome to the Watershed Investigations podcast, Tales from the Frontline of the Water Crisis. I'm Liana Hosea and I'm here with Rachel Salvage. It was only a few years ago that Cape Town in South Africa came dangerously close to what's being called Day Zero, the time when there's no longer enough water available to drink and then the taps run dry. For other places around the world, this is already becoming a reality. Now, even though Cape Town managed to avoid Day Zero by residents drastically reducing their use, there are still lots of lessons to be learned. Now, Liana, you actually went to Cape Town to report on the water crisis, didn't you? Yes, I was in Cape Town actually just before the COVID pandemic hit. And what struck me was is that it's such a place of stark contrasts. So not everyone experienced the water shortages equally. And then poor residents told me that they feel like they're suffering day zero conditions every day. So even though I made this report a couple of years ago, I think it can really paint a good picture of the situation on the ground before we launch into our interviews with our guests, who will include Faiza Mayer, a resident from Cape Town, and Professor Hannah Cloak, a leading hydrologist who has researched water inequality. So just come up to a bridge so I can get a high point of the shanty town and it's huge there's just shacks pretty much as far as you can see and the river running through it is full of rubbish i'm in one of the many slums or informal settlements that have grown up around south africa's kailicha township there are about 16,000 shacks here and to get water the residents have to be resourceful we put the pipes and taps. That's how we get the water running. Nungleba is a Kailicha community leader. Like you, for instance, in front of me, this is our taps that we put us, ourselves as a community on our pockets that we collect money and then we buy pipes and then we make our temporary taps. That's how we're surviving. This is the municipal water? Yes, it is the municipal water. If Nungleba straightens from her makeshift tap, she can see Stellenbosch Mountains, South Africa's wine area and home to billionaires. South Africa is full of these contradictions between the rich and the poor and very, very sharp but arbitrary lines dividing the two people. Musa Gwebani is from the South African Social Justice Coalition, which works with the poorest in Kailicha to try and get them access to running water and sanitation. I mean, 90% of South Africa's dams are privately owned, and so those are owned by farmers. And it's quite clear who's going to survive the next wave of climate change and who won't, just from the skewed ownership of resources currently. Farmers also suffered in the drought, but the inequality of water distribution is reflected in Cape Town's health data, which shows half of all the children under five admitted to hospital for severe diarrhoea last year from Kailicha Township. For one Kailicha resident, the reason is obvious. This area is not good at all. This toilet, uh, the communal toilet, 15 are using only one toilet. You see this green water, it's not good when the drains are overflowing. Also, this big puddle of water in the road is dirty sewage water, and there's yeah. children playing just around and, there. And they have diarrhea and the skin problem. At the Cape Town Marina, a world away from Kailicha, I meet Lance Witten from the African News Agency, 
who has been following the twists of the water crisis. You're going, okay, well, Cape Town's just averted a crisis. How come there are still people queuing to collect water from tankers twice a week? We've got desalination plants that millions of rands were spent on. And suddenly now, well, are they churning out water? Are we using that water? In 2018, three emergency desalination plants were built to convert seawater and pump it into the municipal water system. But managers at one plant say it's not working because the seawater is 40 times more polluted with sewage and contaminants than expected. And city officials say the other plants have intermittently stopped because of pollution levels. They did it under emergency situations. But if you look at the water strategy now, desalination is literally last on the list. Greg Brill from the Western Cape government says the desalination plants were a temporary fix. The budget will only stretch so far and informal settlements tend to go up very quickly in the Cape and other cities as well. Can we create resilient communities that use as little water as possible without becoming uncomfortable? Water is no longer a single-use entity. It needs to be used multiple times for multiple uses before we discard it. I'm fighting for the community. I must still fight. But in Kailicha, residents like Nongeba feel abandoned by the government. So it's not an easy one. My son, sometimes he complains, Mama, you don't give us enough time. I said, one day you'll see what I'm fighting for, and then you'll understand. Well, Faiza Maya lives in a township next to the city of Cape Town, and she's a founding member of the Africa Water Commons Collective, which works to improve access to clean water for all. We are not denying the fact that climate change is real and that we have water shortages. But even if we look at 2018, you know, when we were facing day zero, when we did our own investigations, it wasn't a matter of there wasn't enough water. It was more a matter of mismanagement. There wasn't water in people's taps. We were restricted, but there was bottled water on the shelf for sale. Our main aim is fighting against privatization. And if you speak to the city of Cape Town now, they will say, no, South Africa's water will never be privatized. You know, even though we know that water is on the stock market in the U.S. And that scares us. But from poor people's perspective, it feels very private because we have water management devices, as an example, that provides people with 350 liters of water not even close to enough for a working class household because we have extended family living in the house, people living in the front and the side of the house, up to five structures on one property. 350 litres for yes. a household. How, how long was that for? Is that per day? or? So it's 350 litres of water per day. The AWCC, mm -hmm. we did uh, what we call the water mapping exercise and people measured what they used and so the 350 litres of water wasn't just not enough. The meter itself was, a, was faulty. And so it kept on breaking. And so people are constantly in, in arrears and have high bills because of these meters. Working class people, poor people are not wasting water. We are using water for basic needs and we're barely surviving. They do not wash their face or their hands or brush their teeth in the morning. Or they don't flush. They flush once a day. Or, you know, all these unhealthy kind of things. People are teaching their children not to wash their hands. What, mm. what does that even mean during COVID? Is everyone in Cape Town, all residents in Cape Town, including rich residents? Or is it just residents in townships who are getting these 
liters no. restricting to to 350 liters a day definitely only the poor people on the cape flats if you look at a satellite photo you'll see that on the one side of the railway there's those who can afford it and on the other side that's where the meters are being installed and none of the businesses were restricted breweries wasn't told you can only use x amount of water or because they of course are getting water for over 100 years for free because they position themselves on the springs on the water springs if they want to make money they should be meeting the people who can afford to pay for it we definitely can't afford to pay for it I came to Cape Town uh, to some of the informal settlements and uh, Kailicha Township just before the COVID pandemic and a lot of people had communal taps where you had many households sharing a tap. Since COVID, have there been promises to improve the situation? You know, the city would answer your question and say, yes, things have improved. But again, from a working class perspective, nothing has changed. People are still living in dire conditions. We weren't happy with the blue top water management device, the one that provided people with 350 liters of water. And we organized vigorously in many communities. In some of the communities, they didn't manage to install meters. People had whistles to remind each other when the plumbing companies around. So in 2021, they put out a statement and the statement was to inform us that this blue top water management device has now come to the end of its lifespan. And at the same time, they say, but we've come up with a new system and believe it or not, it sounds better, but it's 10 times worse. You're allowed to use 500 and no more. With the first month, they will send you a warning letter to tell you that you are using more than 500 liters per day. The third month, they put you on a drip system. And this drip system, you will be on it for 12 months. There's no negotiations whatsoever. So 200 liters of water literally drips out of people's steps. And that's happening now. After the 12 months of punishment, and they say punishment, our ward counselors have no issues saying, oh, if you don't pay, they're going to punish you. And so after the punishment for 12 months, they then put you on 500 again. Again, you use more than 500. They put you on another drip system for 12 months, but then the city manager, and here's the trick, the city manager has the sole authority to decide whether he wants to put you on prepaid, and that is ultimately where they want to go. Poor people will die. We will never have money to buy water to keep our families alive. There's pensioners in our communities that scraping ice out of the freezer so that they can drink their chronic medication. One of the pensioners that was part of our water action committee in an area called Beacon Valley, she just passed away. But she was using water that was coming out of a broken pipe. It's water management devices, but in the poor communities, we call it weapons of mass destruction because that's exactly what it is. It's killing us slowly. We feel that water is a precious gold because it belongs to someone else, apparently. You know, during day zero, it was too farmers who could save Cape Town or the Western Cape with I don't know how many millions or billions of liters of water. We might not know the stats, but we know what's going on. People are not stupid. They see the inequality. What does the government say when all these accusations are leveled at it for not managing the water properly and to show what apparent favoritism to different sections of society or to, or to businesses? What? How do they respond? 
you know, if government would just give us a chance even to speak, an honest opportunity, then I could answer your question. The last meeting we had, they wanted to know who are we and, you know, what are we doing? We were like, no, we can't keep on doing this. You can't. Every time we meet with people from the city of Cape Town or the Department of Water and Sanitation, you act surprised. Like you haven't heard of us, so you don't know what we're busy with. And then we tell you everything we do and we end up getting nothing from you. We, we don't have faith in the government anymore. So, you know, we know that when we're little, when we're few, they just ignore us. So we're building the mess so that we can speak loud enough so that they can listen, so that they can hear us, that we are dying, that we are struggling. And you know who has access to water? The drug lords. The drug houses, they don't get ta uh, targeted because I don't know if our water councillors are afraid of them. They get water and people stand in the same queue. You find pensioners standing in the same queue as the druggie. If this isn't a crisis, then I don't know. I Do you think there be enough water for all? I think there is enough water for all. I think it's being mismanaged. I think it's being put towards profit-making instead of people. You know, not even half of the dams that's here in, in the Western Cape is owned by the government. How is that? A few people has more than the most. There's something wrong with it. We are understanding capitalism and the system and how it's working and how it's impacting us. We have a campaign that we want to launch as soon as possible. It's a campaign for water for life and encourage our communities to stand up for themselves because in Kenya at the moment there's water ATMs. It scares me, it scares me so much that I have to go to an ATM or even have to buy water anywhere because that's the one thing we can't survive without. That was Faiza Mayer from the African Water Commons Collective. And we put a number of her points to the city of Cape Town and Councillor Zahid Badruddin, the city's mayoral committee member for water and sanitation, got back to us saying they encourage residents to be water wise at all times and refute that water meters were mainly installed in poorer areas, saying water management devices were installed in various areas across the city, adding that 40% of households in Cape Town receive water and sanitation services free of charge. The city wanted it to be made clear that the allocation of 350 litres per day, which Faiza initially talked about, was dropped in mid-July 2021. To Pfizer's complaint over the new 500 litre per day allowance, they responded saying no prepaid meters are in use. If residents use more than the 15,000 litres per month, which roughly works out to 500 litres per day, they will receive a notice to reduce consumption and if they require more, they can apply for additional allocation. However, if the consumption is not reduced by the second month or application is submitted without the requiring supporting documents, a restriction disc allowing 6,000 litres will be inserted to the metres for 12 months. So the city's new rules are that if a household goes over their maximum allowance of 15,000 litres per month, they could have their water share halved for a year. But as Faiza pointed out, obviously a household could include extended family members and other renters and if they don't manage to kind of prove that with the proper documentation they might still get that allowance halved if they've overused. 
So for more insight on the water situation in Cape Town and for a bit of global context, we're joined by Hannah Cloak, a professor of hydrology at the University of Reading, who has also advised the UK government on their water issues and was appointed officer of the Order of the British Empire. Hannah, we've been hearing from Faiza about the unequal distribution of water and you've actually researched this area, haven't you, and had some pretty stark findings. Yes, we've had a really in-depth investigation into the interplay between the water itself and the people living there and how they use that water. We looked at the differences between the different portions of society. So those people who are elite, who have swimming pools, who water their gardens and have large houses, and those much poorer people who live perhaps in the shacks at the edge of the cities and don't even have taps and toilets in their own home. And we looked at the different ways that they use water. And what we found was really a quite strong evidence that these inequalities, those are the ones that are making the drought situation worse, this water crisis occur. And yes, climate change is important. Yes, population growth is important. But actually, what is driving these crises are these inequalities themselves. I think people are going to be really surprised to hear that, that it's those social inequalities that you talk about rather than climate change or economic growth or population growth. Did that come as a surprise to you? So the research team who went to Cape Town found that people understood that this was a problem. Um, the elites were using water because they found it was an endless supply. They didn't see the water as a shared resource that belongs to all of us. And so, for example, in a time of drought, they might drill a borehole to make themselves more resilient to future drought. But of course, that borehole goes down into the ground. And that's a shared water resource that, that feeds other water supplies in the area. They saw this as a, just their right to take as much water as they like. Mm. Whereas, it, you know, if you're in a much poorer community, you understand that drinking water is really, really important to look after because you have so little of it. And these restrictions that were put on during the drought really made people suffer in these poorer communities because they couldn't access water for their basic needs. Pfizer and her community are clearly suffering a lot from the restrictions and they're worried even more about the future if they're going to have to start paying for the water. When you were doing your study, could you work out exactly how much is being used by the different, different people within the different social levels within Cape Town? So our results showed that the privileged groups at the top, they make up less than 14% of the population. They're using more than half, so 51% of the water yeah. resources. Now, mm. that's, that's absolutely shocking, mm. isn't it? And then those poor communities are using so very much less. And then when you get into a crisis situation, the poorer communities don't have access to these additional water supplies, these, these boreholes, or perhaps even access to bottled water because, you know, they don't have the funds to pay for that or the land privileges to, to drill a borehole. So, yeah, they're really stark results, really shocking, actually. And is it a similar pattern in other major cities across the world? We find this pattern in lots of cities across the world. So this is why we set up this modelling process in the first place, because we know that in Cape Town there are these uh, stark inequalities, this stark segregation in cities. But that mm. applies to lots and lots of cities everywhere. It applies to London, so very near where I live. We see the same types of patterns played out. You know, we're walking into severe water crises around the world. We've already seen several really bad ones happen. But as we do 
have a changing climate, as we do have a growing population and further demand on our water supplies, we know that these inequalities are the things that are controlling whether people can access water. We've got to sort that out quickly all the way around the world. I mean, over the last two decades, you know, you can see the glaciers are melting, drought is intensifying, water storage on land has dropped at a rate of one centimetre per year, according to the World Meteorological Organization. The global population has grown by over two billion in the last 25 years. I mean, can water use by the richest sections of society really be as damaging as climate change or population growth? So no matter how much water we've got, If you are the elite and you are controlling the power over that water, then you are going to impact the poorest in society. So no matter what happens with climate change, if that pattern exists, then everybody is going to suffer in the long run. And we're in this crazy situation where actually we think providing better and more water infrastructure is the way to solve the problem. We think, oh, climate change, that means uh, you know, going to get less rain or it's going to become more unpredictable. So we're going to need to build better reservoirs and better structures so we can capture that rain. And that is potentially part of the solution, but it also creates more problems. It has this feedback loop which means the more infrastructure we build, the more water we use. And actually, that's not really very helpful in the long run. So particularly elite populations, so those people who are controlling the power over the water, will build more infrastructure for themselves and then use more water and there's less water for everyone. So walking into a changing climate where we do have much more unpredictable rainfall patterns, we have much less water in some places, much more water in other places, of course, because floods are also a problem. We need to think about what we can do to adapt to these changing conditions. And what is clear from the results that we found in our study is we're not even doing it right now, let alone in the future with a changed climate. So are we talking about like swimming pools and golf courses or is it more about big business and who owns the large bodies of water? We heard from Pfizer earlier about dams being privately owned or the monopolising of springs. And you also mentioned London, which I'm I'm quite surprised about that you can compare, you know, the situation in London and, and Cape Town. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because everybody thinks London's got everything sorted, but definitely we have not. Right now we're in a situation where some parts in the south of the UK have had water restrictions put in, and we really aren't resilient to any future drought situation this summer. London has its own inequality problem. It's perhaps not as stark as Cape Town, but it certainly exists. And there are problems with the poorer people in in society not being able to access basic water needs. Is it just a domestic problem? Definitely not. So industry plays a a large part. Agriculture plays a large part in keeping water for themselves. Poor irrigation practices, wasting of water, or just an assumption that water is there for economic gain. These are really big problems that can't be solved unless we have a a really strong government lead, I think on making sure that we have equitable access to water. I, really, I was really interested in what you were saying about short-sightedness because we see this quite a lot, that it seems to be that governments and those responsible for the water sector might be off what seem to be pretty short-sighted in terms of 
what they've put in place because they've seen these climate change predictions, they've seen the, the population growth predictions, they know that there's, there's going to be a problem, yet they appear not to have invested enough in time to make sure that we're resilient now because what they're going to do in the short term now is take more from rivers because they haven't put that supply infrastructure in place. But those rivers will be in drought, so it doesn't make a great deal of sense. At the same time, they're leaking huge volumes of water as well. So is there is there a, a tiny risk that your research, even, even though it's incredibly valuable and we need to know this and demand has to be cut back, you're absolutely right, but might this give them a little bit of a scapegoat? Might they sort of point to this and sort of say, well, we need to manage it better rather than and stick in a reservoir which has its own problems, as you've, as you've outlined? Yeah, I think we need to have a lot of solutions going on at the same time. So this part of the work is looking at inequalities in society and how they are really a sticking point in making ourselves resilient in the future or even now to some of these droughts. But absolutely, definitely, we need to hold government to account. We need to hold water companies to account. We need to make sure that industry and agriculture are playing their part too because we cannot be damaging the environment. It's not just droughts, it's floods too. The floods infrastructure is failing. Uh, so we end up with homeowners either not having enough water or having too much water damaging the property. This is not an easy problem to solve. Well, Hannah, can you look into your crystal ball and look at some of those future projections in terms of water use and how water can be more equitably shared when as you said, we're meeting these growing pressures on our clean water sources, whether that's pollution or greater use or mismanagement, population growth and, and climate change. So if we look at the future and we think about what could happen, the ideal situation is that we decide that we want to live in a society where everyone has equal access to water and that we can put in place the structures and the policies to make that happen. Now, that is a very idealistic scenario, but every time we step towards that, we can make things better in order to make ourselves water secure in the future. The evidence shows us that we are going to have even more unpredictable rainfall patterns across the world, and there will be places that will be very dry in the future. We do have to take account of that and do what we can to capture that rain when it does fall and look after it, recycle water wherever we can. But really, we should not be in a position where people now don't have access to water for their basic needs, let alone in the future. That is our best option. But if water infrastructure needs investment, do we need to be paying for water as it's a diminishing resource or does there need to be a basic amount for the poor? Is it, should it be means tested? You know, our Pfizer's worries that poor people could die as a result, justified? Absolutely. I mean, we should not be in a position where people can't afford to buy water. Uh, there needs to be a basic provision for everybody to have access to the water that they need. How do we pay for the water? Those people who have the most money should be paying the most. Those people who use the most water should be paying for that too. The situation where water is just taken for granted and thought to generate economic growth all by itself, like magic, I think is unrealistic and certainly very unfair and it is not a world I want to live in. Can we end on something a little bit hopeful? Is there some good news <laughs> in any of this? Is there one thing that you can think, well, 
Actually, there is hope now because water is getting more recognition amongst the international community, or is, is, is that not correct? It's very important that we work together, so as, as an international community, but also across disciplines. I mean, I'm a hydrologist, a physical scientist by background, but through working with my social science colleagues, and particularly Elisa Savelli at Uppsala, I've learned so much about what's actually really important and what's controlling access to water and what's really causing the problems when a, a big drought comes. I mean, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would be much more of the opinion that we just need to model the rainfall and work out how it moved through the soil and, and into the rivers. But now I have a much greater understanding of, of what's really causing these issues. So through working together, I think we can really understand what's going on and then we can do something about it if we truly understand. Well, yeah, that's all been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Hannah Cloak. It's been great to hear that. Of course. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.